Hi, and uh, welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Market Retail Podcast. Uh, today, uh, we'll be discussing about the grocery retailing in areas that have been impacted by uh, disasters, right? So these disasters could be in, uh, natural disasters or man-made disasters. Um, and this is a very relevant topic because many disasters have impacted the emerging world in recent years. And this is a trend that is expected to, to grow, to accelerate, uh, particularly because of global warming. So now we have more floods, droughts, and uh, extreme uh, weather conditions. And also because of, let's call it, a volatile geopolitical situation in many countries. In other words, conflicts. So, Rafael, why don't you drive us through a few key points about this topic? Yes, of course. So we thought we would start by providing just a few numbers to show uh, you know, how massive this challenge really is. So if we uh, talk about war, 60% of the developing world is currently facing a war. So there is organized violence in 49 countries, and there has been an average of 20 civil wars at each point in time since 1989, right? So these are really uh, massive and staggering numbers. Now, estimates suggest that 235 million people need immediate access to food aid. Um, this is a 40% growth in 2021 with respect to 2020. And, you know, this is, of course, largely driven by the COVID pandemic and the challenges that it really generated. Um, so today, there are more than 68 million people that have been displaced by these disasters, with this number, of course, growing, given the recent challenges that we've seen in, in, in Ukraine, uh, and in Ethiopia, just, just to name a couple of examples, uh, with more than 25 million refugees worldwide. So Camilo, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the supply chain and, and the different actors involved. Of course. So basically we have, uh, let's say, two sides. So on, on, on the left-hand side, we have uh, the, the, the donors, you know, of, of aids, funds, and, and people that are willing to help in these situations. And on the other side, let's say the right-hand side, we have uh, the beneficiaries that could be, it could have been like the, um, the refugees or the victims of natural disasters. And there are um, other entities, other parties involved in these uh, ecosystem, such as local governments, such as media, uh, companies, right? The private sector plays a key role here. Uh, the local community, you know, uh, 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 these micro firms that are that that start adapting also in order to be part of the supply chain, and at the end of the day, ensure the flow of goods to the people in need. Um, so, so uh, um, a very challenging part of, of these, let's say, humanitarian operations is that these uh, organizations require more aid. And just to give you an, an example, 55% uh, of the requirements in, in on average go unmet. Okay, so if you are listening or watching this episode and um, and you want to help, please do it. Okay, when whenever a disaster comes, and also a very important uh, uh, let's say fact to to reflect on is that seventy five percent of the expenses in these operations go to the supply chain are incurred in transportation, in storage, in handling, and the distribution of this type of goods, right? Yes. And I think this is where, uh, you know, these humanitarian organizations hope 
that technology can create can create massive efficiency gains so that hopefully uh, this huge gap in funding that they are facing today can can hopefully be closed in the future. Um, but we thought that we would just provide some overview of recent disasters. Uh, so starting with with wars, um, we we can think of you know the, the challenges that this creates in terms of population displacements and hunger, and we can think of places like Syria, Yemen, Ukraine, Afghanistan, and Ethiopia that have you know recently faced uh, really terrible conflicts. Um, if we think of epidemics, there is the case, of course, of COVID-19, but there's also uh, the measles outbreak, Ebola, or the H1N1 2009 swine flu pandemic. Natural disasters, uh, such as the earthquakes in Haiti in 2021 and 2010, which really come to mind when one thinks about uh, mm -hmm. disasters. Uh, the floods and the earthquakes in the Indian subcontinent in 2019 and 2020, the earthquake in Nepal in 2015, or the earthquake in Indonesia in 2018. Now, when I describe uh, some of these uh, conflicts and some of these uh, disasters more broadly, um, we can see that they are heavily concentrated in the emerging world. So we thought that it would make sense uh, to see you know, how grocery retail supply chains are affected by these disasters and how companies and humanitarian organizations in particular can react in order to uh, provide access to basic items for um, the local communities that are affected by these disasters. Absolutely. So uh, to address uh, the, the question that you just mentioned and how did the grocery retail sector adapt in the immediate, uh, short, medium and long term to, to these situations, uh, we have invited a couple of experts in the field. So without further ado, let's move on to our next section discussing with an expert. Let's go there. Right. Welcome back to the Emerging Market Retail Podcast. Today, um, we welcome Professor Maria Bissou, who is a Dean of Research at Kuna Logistics University and PhD candidate Navid Mohamari, to discuss grocery retailing in disaster-stricken areas based on their detailed knowledge of the humanitarian logistics field, including their recent publication in Production and Operations Management Journal called Impacts of Pandemics on the Humanitarian Retailing Operations, a Voucher's Case. We will be discussing how supply chains in emerging markets react to multiple types of disasters, including wars, natural disasters, and epidemics. Uh, these disasters really affect the supply chain and um, you know, countries and, and companies within these countries have to react, taking different strategies, for instance, sending the items to the disaster areas or um, using the local communities in order to procure the items that are needed within the disaster zones. So Maria, um, recently we have all been very attentive to the delicate situation in Ukraine. However, we know that today many regions in the emerging world are currently undergoing several types of wars. So more broadly, how are grocery retail supply chains affected by wars and how does war further affect grocery retail supply chains in neighboring countries, for instance, as a result of refugee flows or price fluctuations in commodities? Thank you, Rafael. I think it's a very interesting question. And also you gave a very nice introduction, right? So maybe I can add first some things on the introduction and then go into the main question. Actually, Red Cross, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, they say that on a single day, they 
operate disaster response programs in 60 different countries around the globe. In most of the cases, the public, we are not the audience, we are not aware of the 60 different places, right? Some of them may be affected by man-made disasters, conflicts, like the unfortunate case of Ukraine. Others may be affected by natural disasters, like floods or hurricanes, earthquakes, etc. And of course, I mean, all of us, unfortunately, the last two years, we know very well the impact that pandemics can have on the supply chains. Now, there are two aspects when it comes to what needs to happen when a disaster strikes. First of all, we have different organizations that they need to respond in order to make sure that they satisfy the needs, that satisfy the demand. From the other perspective, we have organizations that they need to operate the supply chain. Now, when there is a disaster, the supply chain will, have, will break. First of all, because infrastructure may be afraid, may be affected. And this may happen both in the case of natural disasters, but also in the case of man-made disasters. Then, guests of people like smallholder farmers or retailers that are active in these places, their operations will also be affected. They will not be able to go to the farms, to their farms for a while, right? They may not be able to go to their retail shops. First of all, they have to take care of their families. And that will definitely affect, will definitely reduce the local supply, especially for a while. Now, from the other perspective, the international supply will also be affected because there will be many different humanitarian organizations that will try to procure items that are needed. If we think of the pandemic that happened and try to remember what was happening the first couple of months during the COVID-19 outbreak, was it easy to fight medical equipment, masks? Not really, right? Why? Because all the countries, all the people, all the population started panicking and they wanted to buy as more items as they could. Not really thinking about what are the real needs, but more with the concerns about the future, how the future would look like. Now, you mentioned in your question that there are different types of disasters, right? And if I would like to elaborate a little bit on how these different disasters affect the supply chains, I would say that typically the most difficult disasters to respond to are the man-made disasters. First, because you have a lot of refugees, a lot of the local population that they don't, they don't feel safe anymore, right? In the places where they live. Ukraine is a very good example. We also have Ethiopia, Tigray. We know what is happening there. There is a big percentage of the population that also lives. And of course, Syria. Everybody is aware of the Syria migration crisis and also how this affected Europe and the European Union in general. So first differentiator when it comes to man-made disasters is the refugee crisis that you have. Of course, that is very bad for the local population, but for the neighboring countries, from one perspective, it limits a lot their capacities, right? Because these people have needs that they need to be satisfied by the local, the regional capacity. From the other side, it also creates some kind of opportunities, let's say, right, to develop. If their markets are strong enough or if they get enough international support to build local markets, 
then they can also support better not only the refugees, but also the local population. This is the first differentiator when it comes to man-made disasters versus natural disasters. The second is the funding. In most of the cases, especially when it comes to the uh, private people like us, right, and not the institutional donors, we feel much better to donate money to natural disasters because we feel that everybody can be affected by an earthquake. Whereas in most of the cases, especially for conflicts that take place within one country, we feel that there is, there is a part of the population that is causing this conflict. And we are not so happy to donate money for this. Ukraine is a little bit of a different example because we have a different country that invaded into Ukraine. Got it. So, um, so David, uh, Maria just uh, described, you know, and, and thank you for doing that, Maria, described very uh, clearly uh, where are the main challenges when when a disaster uh, happens, right? In particular, in the case of the Ukraine, up to date, uh, around uh, 10 million people have been forced to flee their homes, right? Uh, of those, like around 4 million have crossed borders to uh, neighboring countries, uh, particularly like half of them into Poland. And the other uh, 6.5 million are just, uh, you know, um, have been like displaced within the country. Right. So in terms of, of, of the supply chain, you know, uh, can you can you tell us how this grocery retail works within these refugee camps in these uh, countries? Right. In these uh, uh, or in disaster areas. And and also, what are some of the emerging trends that humanitarian organizations are trying to to deploy to to implement to to facilitate you know the, the flow of goods because Maria was you made uh, uh, clear that this is this is like the the goal you know the ultimate goal is to ensure the flow of goods right uh, when organizations take over the supply chain and 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 organize it right and with the local communities in order to supply so so can you please uh, tell us a little bit about about that about making this acquisition more uh, with more dignity for these people that are in in these uh, uh, facing these uh, problems yes of course thank you very much for the question uh this is this is indeed very interesting uh i would like to uh, elaborate a, a bit that traditionally humanitarian assistance were mainly providing in-kind assistance to uh, to affected uh, beneficiary, people in need. What do I mean by in-kind is that usually these humanitarian organizations used to procure products either from other countries or either from the same country or neighbor countries, trying to pack these products into single per person or per family uh, packages and then transport it to the affected community camp, as you, as you call it, refugee camp and then try to distribute uh, these, these assistance among uh, refugees. Uh, this was perfect. And still, this is a very uh, dominant type of assistance already, depending on uh, different cases, different situations. But there has been a trend from the last decade, let's say, toward changing the assistance, uh, the type of assistance toward cash-based transactions or cash and vouchers assistance. 
in which uh, humanitarian organizations provide beneficiaries with type of e-cars, e-vouchers, cash in some cases, or even paper vouchers, uh, and at the same time contract some local retailers uh, at, because they want these beneficiaries be able to redeem their vouchers in specific stores, right? They want to make them enable to purchase what they're willing to. And this is this was a big uh, next kind of assistance, uh, type of assistance that, that came through, which because at the same time, increase the dignity of the beneficiaries, empowers the beneficiaries with the power of choice, gives them ability to, to choose what type of products they want to use, mm -hmm. whether they want more rice or whether they want more other products, right? Uh, especially talking about, in this case, uh, specifically food. And uh, there, there are many literatures, many, many incidences that, that uh, emphasizes the, the importance of using cash-based transactions or cash and voucher assistance in order to dignify uh, the beneficiaries more uh, with, with empowering them with choice. But the, the limitation that comes with the cash and voucher assistance is that you already need to have some kind of retail stores that mm -hmm. to earmark those, those vouchers uh, and enable the beneficiaries to go there and purchase their, their needed product. So if you have, if you don't have a retailers, or if the retailers has been affected by natural disasters, or if the community is so small that no retailer has initiated their, their store already there, then what do you do? Basically, it sounds that it is impossible to, to use this kind of assistance anymore. And recently, uh, World Food Program started an initiative called Retail in a Box, where in our paper, actually, we are the first to introduce this initiative as some like uh, amazing tool to uh, make it possible to implement cash and voucher assistance with a lot of benefits in places mm -hmm. that has never been possible. Uh, what, what they do usually, they, they try to uh, bring infrastructure or help the retailers to build their own stores in that area by assuring them that they're gonna have enough demand to, to get refund, to basically make money out of it. And at the same time, beneficiaries get access to a closed retail stores that they haven't had before. And humanitarian organization reach out to the people with this kind of assistance that dignified them more, which wasn't possible before. And it looks like a very much win-win-win situation uh, uh, that looks amazing. This is this is uh, uh, quite interesting, Navid. What you are uh, describing very illustrative because uh, you know when when uh, there is a disaster, uh, as an spectator, you are less just like uh, hoping for for the best, but you don't know what's going uh, uh, what's happening in the black box. People is uh, uh, donating or sending, you know, items like like food. Uh, I remember the case in 2017 uh, in in Mexico City. We had an, an earthquake. I was there, and you know, uh, there were there were even like uh, uh, at the beginning problems because everybody was sending a lot of food, uh, but this food wasn't like cooked. So then uh, people like like thank you for the rice, but I cannot have it. I need prepared food. So then people start sending prepared food, but it was so much that uh, uh, it, it started to to uh, rotten, right? So um, so I, I I think that in the case of the humanitarian side, 
we humans, we want the best and we want to support, but we don't know how to how to do it and how to, let, let's say, um, make all these efforts count in the best way possible. Now, uh, Maria, I, I would like to, to, to maybe you can, you can help us understanding what, what is the difference between the commercial retailer, retailing sorry, before and after a disaster, and also the different like, I don't know if, if you have mapped that, but the different like stages, you know, so uh, the, the, let's say the first shock, what happens uh, in, the, in the left-hand side of the supply chain, the right-hand side, you know, in, the, in, in terms of the supplies for the, the consumers, and then in the midterm, and then in the long run. I think that there is very often the misperception, and if we think what happened with COVID-19, etc., right, that the population in countries like in Germany, so in developed countries, will operate in exactly the same way like population in refugee camps during COVID-19. And this is definitely a misperception. Why? Because when we are, when we live in developed countries, and there are the different retail shops, right, that are close to us. We have enough money to use them exactly in the way that we want. For example, if we're afraid that we get pasta or rice or potatoes or toilet paper, it's our decision. It's nobody else's decision. If we think now about population that live close to the borders of poverty, which is very often what happens in some developing countries, right? Or population that actually they don't have money on their own, like refugees. Refugees are not working. They don't have a stable income. These people, they cannot really just go to a retail shop and say, okay, I will buy whatever I want now. They will think about the needs. They will think about their basic needs and the needs that they have right now or the needs that they're going to have tomorrow. So all of these hoarding effects, right, that we have seen very often in developed countries, they don't take place in these different types of environments. The people will go there and just buy what they need. And items that they can use right away. Camilo, you actually gave a very nice example of um, what happened in, uh, in the earthquake in Mexico, right? In Mexico City, some years ago. Of course, this is not only the case of the Mexico City. When there is the first days, the first actually couple of weeks after a big disaster, the people cannot just cook. Right? They need food that is ready, ready to consume. Food with a lot of calories that in any other case, it will not be the healthiest food that we can think of, but food that will give them enough energy throughout the day. If they only manage to eat something once per day and something very quick, something very small. After the first month, we hope that things will start getting a little bit more stable which means that humanitarian organizations in advance, they will start distributing to the population things that they need to use for the cooking. And then you will have more rice, more potatoes, more pasta, right? You need oil, cooking oil. So everything that they need in order to satisfy their needs. And this is also the, the time that most of the retail shops will also start operating again. So the first couple of days, the retailers will have more important problems to solve. When things will get more stable, then they will start building some kind of partnerships with humanitarian organizations 
they will know that the beneficiaries, the people in need, will be going to them with vouchers or with specific amount of money. And then they know also what type of items they are allowed to sell to them. For example, tobacco or alcohol is not in the priorities, as you can imagine. So this is how, let's say, different the retail operations are. And the further away we go from the disaster, and the more developed the country is that the disaster happened, then the quicker everything will go back to normal. The other, sorry, just to add something, the other thing that is very important is how the humanitarian organizations are going to uh, approach the retailers. Very often what happens is that the retailers may see a great opportunity of a lot of money going to them. And the risk is that they may inflate the prices. If the only people that would buy from the retailers would be the ones that would get the money from humanitarian organizations, someone would say that the problem is not big. But there is always a percentage of the population that they don't meet criteria in order to serve as beneficiaries, to get this money, right? Or to get these vouchers. And for these people, if they see the prices exploding, they will not be able to satisfy anymore their basic needs. And then they also become beneficiaries. And this is something that we need to be very uh, careful of when it comes to retailing operations in humanitarian environments. Thank you, Maria. So, so I mean, you've already mentioned like a few initiatives that can be undertaken by the different uh, players in, in, in this supply chain, but perhaps um, perhaps you can you can tell us a little bit more about like how uh, retailers would usually react. Um, so we know in, in, in emerging markets, for instance, a lot of the retail is um, conducted in these small informal stores, right? So um, perhaps there the, the role would need to be assumed by the manufacturer. So perhaps you can tell us a bit more about different initiatives that can be undertaken in order to um, let's say, respond throughout these different stages of the disaster? So usually what happens with the humanitarian supply chain is that it's a mixture of a push-pull supply chain. So that in the first phase of the disasters, we have what we call push. So we'll try to push in the country, in the region where the disaster happened, as more relief items as possible. Of course, there is always the chance that what will happen is what Camilo described earlier, that what we will be sending in the area of disaster will be donations that are definitely useless for the local population, or even dangerous, because if the food items are expired, or if the medical items are expired, or if the language of the guidelines of the medical items is different from the one of the local population, you can easily imagine what will happen if the people will get in their hands these specific items. Now, in the first phases, in the first couple of weeks, it's a global manufacturers, of course, in collaboration with the donors, in collaboration with the humanitarian organizations, that will be the ones to push these items. Depending on the size of the disaster, if it is one that focuses on in one country, it will be easy, more or less, to satisfy the needs that we have. In the case of COVID, it was a global phenomenon, and that's why it was difficult actually to have all the items that we needed. After the first um, couple of weeks, the local retailers 
will be able to start operating again. There would be always the option to continue procuring items locally, uh, sorry, internationally. But in this case, we would not be able to also empower the local economy, empower the local population. And this is really bad because if we just procure items from outside of the country, how can we help the local population start building a better life quality again? The goal always of the humanitarian organizations is that when they will leave, when they will exit the country, the level of quality of the local population will be the same or better than the one that they had before. And this cannot be really built if we only use international supplies, if we only use international human resources that come into the place of the disaster. And that's why nowadays there's a lot of pressure for localization. What we call localization is building a stronger local infrastructure, making sure that there is better education in the different countries in order for the people, the local people, to be able to know how to respond, to be able to work for the humanitarian organizations when a disaster will happen, both local ones and international ones. Also, these people will be the ones to, uh, to work for the government, right? Which is always a key player when it comes, for example, for customs, importation, exportation of items, the different regulations during the disaster response. And that's why we put more emphasis on the localization, what we call localization. So an, another question is, um, what are some of the key innovations that are being de developed within humanitarian supply chains in emerging markets as it relates, for instance, to, well, you've already mentioned a lot about retail operations, but perhaps uh, on, on the side of financial management, information flow. So for instance, what new technologies are being developed? I know that there's a tension between uh, the use of, of, of you know systems that would be a commonplace in, in commercial supply chains and what is really needed in the humanitarian supply chain. So perhaps you can give us a, a perspective into um, the technologies that are needed um, within the supply chains. Maybe, maybe I can say a few words here. Uh, uh, it is a bit hard to talk about really huge technologies because we talk about like developing countries, like uh, a limited number of uh, beneficiaries in different camps located in different places. Usually, uh, usually the, the main aim is bring food to these people, right? And it is sometimes very different what we aim for in a commercial sector, right? So we, we need to understand that there is, there is a few differences. So the main aim of humanitarian organization in this context is to provide food, provide dignity, increase the service level, and this is a huge achievement already, right? Uh, retail in the box is, is a very good example. But I mean, uh, WFE also started some, something new like mobile retailers, right? So when, when there is not possible, the community is so small that you can't build a shop in, in, in a small camp or somewhere in South Sudan, for example, because this, is, this is also belongs to the South Sudan. Uh, they don't, it doesn't work financially. It doesn't work if you build a store in that area. So what, the, the alternative options in that case would be like providing a mobile retailer going to different camps, different locations in a different days uh, of a week, and then making sure that these people can procure what they need with an acceptable kind of service level, right? What else, uh, this, I don't know if this also goes in the term, in direction of financial management, but, but uh, it's a different structure of supply chain when you don't contract the retailers, right? 
you contract the big suppliers, ensuring uh, a specific uh, assortment of the products and the prices of the product. They already achieved amazing, amazing uh, results already by, by using and contracting the, the, the big suppliers, bringing them into the picture. And uh, Professor Bizu and I are, are focusing on uh, thinking of, about like going through uh, a follow-up study and understanding the, the, uh, the importance of using these different structures and how important they might be uh, to generalize it for, for different uh, areas in the world, uh, for different uh, situations in the world. This is from my side. So maybe I can also add uh, something to what Navid was saying. I don't know if you remember some years ago when the Syrian refugee crisis started happening, some journalists, let's say, were surprised that the refugees had their mobile phones with them. And it's not only, of course, for this specific crisis, but also in Africa. We are thinking, oh, people have mobile phones. They cannot get enough food. How can, they, how can this happen, right? But actually, when it comes to mobile phones, mobile transactions of money, developing countries are much more advanced than developed countries. Because this is the way that they can actually get the money that they need in remote places in order to buy the items, to procure the items that they need. So this is definitely a very important uh, technological advancement. Now with uh, the COVID-19, actually more and more drones have been used a lot, also in order to make sure that we have uh, fast delivery of blood samples, right, in especially in remote uh, locations. Um, GPS systems, tracking systems are used more and more in order to make sure that also you reduce cases of corruption, theft, which is also what Camilo asked a little bit earlier. However, all of this technology, we need to use it with precautions. Imagine if you're in a case of a man-made disaster, like the case of Ukraine now, right? And the population sees a drone flying above their heads. Is it a drone that is coming from the enemy? Or is it a drone that is coming from a humanitarian organization? We always need to be very careful about how we, how we use technology. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, there is there's always uh, the risk, but but technology definitely uh, can can um, uh, help. You know, um, uh, let's say uh, mitigate all, all the, the challenges in the supply chain. And I was thinking of the case in the Ukraine of Starlink. So uh, the the infrastructure of of, of comms was. Uh, um, uh, destroyed. So then, you know, Mr. Elon Musk decided to open Starlink for everyone. And now if you have a mobile device, then you can uh, uh, receive, you know, of course, communicate messages. But also I was thinking of maybe uh, receiving the vouchers if you're in the zone and also uh, where you can redeem these vouchers where you can, you know, this is specific stores that maybe uh, are part of the program because not, not, not all of them will, will, uh, will be the case. Right. Um, I have one, one final question and is regarding uh, the case in which, you know, the, the, uh, these humanitarian organizations um, hired the, the, the suppliers, let's say CPGs in order to distribute the goods to the, to the retailers, to the, in this case, nanostores. Uh, but what happens once that aid 
is is uh, uh, depleted. It's it's uh, 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 discontinued. You know uh, what happens with the retailers? Uh, do you have like evidence of the let's say uh, survival of these stores? I mean, ones that that is taken away. I think this is this is one of the big questions that usually comes with the retail in the box, right? Because you build a store, you spend some money in the infrastructure, and then uh, you try to develop. Uh, provide service to to some beneficiaries and and it wasn't before right but always the question is how sustainable this is uh, is it possible to continue afterward or not i think this is also depends on on case but we already have a very fantastic news in in mozambique actually uh, they uh, the the source actually uh, worked after the the assistance stopped so now they working in an area that there, there was no store at all. Uh, and now they're, they're making money, providing service to, to people in the area. And it shows that there is uh, some add-on to the local community in terms of financial and also in terms of service, which is possible via these uh, cash-based transactions that brings value uh, to, to the area. Of course, some people work in this store. Some people uh, get jobs. So, of course, uh, there is a new distribution. Need, some people need to bring food to, to these retail stores. And all these things really has added value uh, to the local community. And yeah, the fantastic news is we already have one perfect example in, in Mozambique that uh, source right now operating. Got it. Okay, so Maria, David, Thank you, thank you very much for your time. This has been an amazing discussion. Uh, congratulations for your research and for all these uh, 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 crucial things that you are doing in KLU in order to tackle you know, these challenges that as you pointed out in the case of disasters of the two types are increasing. So thank you, thank you very much for your time and stay tuned uh, here in the podcast. Have a nice one. Thank you for having us. All right. So welcome back to the Emerging Market Retail Podcast. Professor, um, after this fascinating conversation that we just had with Maria and Navid, um, we touched on so many different elements during the discussion, uh, such as the, the different types of disasters, how funding affects the supply chain, the role of different actors, and the medium and long-term goals that humanitarian organizations um, are now trying to achieve through localization. So what are some of your takeaways and where do you see interesting opportunities emerging for practitioners and researchers? Yeah, so, so I think obviously uh, uh, Maria Beijou, she's, she's a world-class researcher in this in, in this domain, right, of providing the humanitarian uh, aid. Um, I, I, I think, let's say, let me take the angle of retail, right, because the, the topic of our podcast is retail. And I, I, I think there are a number of interesting uh, opportunities uh, around. Um, first, um, uh, I, I, I think if you look at the retail landscape in emerging markets, this retail landscape is extremely fragmented. Uh, we often talked about this. This leads to additional costs in terms of distribution and supply chain. It leads to a proximity and actually convenience for, for the citizens living there. 
But I think if you look at it from the perspective of a disaster, you could also look at it that this actually spreads the risk. It spreads the risk because inventory, inventory is being held widely spread at uh, millions of locations, um, uh, relatively close to where consumers are. Uh, so I think this is one element that actually could be uh, a strength uh, in, a, in a disaster. I think a second element is that we, uh, let's say one of the things that, that we are struggling with is that uh, very often the, the food uh, may not be the most healthy food, mm -hmm. um, but the food holds typically very high calories for um, uh, a, per, per dollar, let's say. Right, and uh, in cases of disaster, this is potentially what is needed. Right, so so again, another weakness, in general, could be a strength in a in a disaster. Right, where, where I think, and maybe the third element is that uh, in uh, emerging markets, we know that consumers they don't tend to stock up a lot. Right, so they they buy a lot, also in small quantities just because they tend to be uh, cash constrained. Um, and again, that normally causes difficulties. Uh, but Maria gave the example where she said, well, you know, if, you're, if you have a disaster in a developed country, everybody will just buy the entire supply chain empty. And that leads to actually a very poor allocation of scarce resources. So think of the gas shortage that typically occurs in the US when there's a hurricane, right? Um, and, and this won't happen in developing countries. So this is maybe a third element, which uh, is a difficulty uh, and something that, uh, that requires specific attention in normal times, but that in times of disaster could actually work out. So, so uh, I, I think these are all opportunities. Where, where the question is, is to what extent these opportunities are also strategically used Right, and, mm -hmm. and this is where uh, the study that, uh, that, that uh, Navid and, and Maria have been conducting to more strategically look at how retail outlets and maybe even temporary retail outlets can be used by NGOs, uh, by non-governmental organizations, by aid organizations, uh, when there is a disaster to sort of take care of distribution of um, of food uh, and maybe other items for that are important for livelihood, um, and in a sense, then also let the local market do their work rather than mm -hmm. sort of pushing things down, right? And um, I I think that the project that, that Maria Navita have been doing is really cool there, uh, but it is also probably still one of very few examples where this is still happening. Um, here at Tilburg, uh, we also have a, a lab that uh, does quite a bit of, uh, of work uh, in humanitarian uh, relief, uh, the Zero Hunger Lab. But I think the difference from the lab that, that Maria is leading at, at KLU is that the lab here doesn't necessarily look at disasters but general conditions of, of poverty and how to lift uh, people out of poverty such that they can attain food. And this is also where uh, retail plays a very, very important role, right? Mm -hmm. So also over there, you can see this linkage. Uh, when we tend to think of 
uh, of food shortages or other things, we tend to think of, of disasters like drought, for instance. But, but in the developing world, there's actually a share of the population that more or less permanently has a shortage of good nutrition. Right, Professor. So imagine a scenario. Imagine that, that I am a manufacturer of food items, like in Poland right now, right? Uh, where the, the country has received around 2.5 uh, million uh, refugees from the Ukraine. Yeah. So, so as a company, let's say that I'm strategically positioned to, to support these humanitarian efforts. Uh, how can I know whether I should do it or not? Because of, let's say, a new demand. So there's a new demand that, that I should uh, maybe um, serve, knowing that is not permanent. But on the other hand, what you are mentioning that aid is coming, so now there, there are more commodities in the market. So, so what would you recommend practitioners to do in this case? Yeah. Difficult question, uh, Camilo. It's, uh, I, I, to be honest, I don't have a very good uh, view on what's happening on the ground at this point in Poland in terms of supplies. I, I think one thing that is probably uh, relevant to realize is that Poland is uh, doing uh, unbelievable, the Polish population is doing an unbelievable job in, in receiving these refugees in their homes and shelters, etc. Um, but in terms of goods flows, they're part of Europe, right? So, so my guess is that uh, the European markets still is largely functioning. And for, with the except of a few commodities that, that are sourced in Ukraine, there is in general no, no shortage here, right? Mm -hmm. So, so and, and uh, the infrastructure is in place, um, companies have their supply chains in place, so there's probably rearranging. If you, if you think already, uh, Germany is, is two and a half times the size of Poland in terms of population. So, so, so I think there will be rebalancing there. And I think that's very different from if you have, if you are in the middle of a conflict zone where, where refugees end up in a very difficult circumstances. So I think if you take the Ethiopia conflict, mm -hmm. uh, right, which is still there, and there uh, are many refugees from Ethiopia that have gone across the border in, in, to Sudan, uh, from Tigray, from the Tigray region. Yeah, I think over there it might be quite a challenge to keep these supply chains working. In Europe, 40 million in Poland, 450 million in the European population. I would guess from a from a food perspective, we should be able to get this supplied. And that means individual entrepreneurs or individual companies, coming back to your question, they may need to reposition some things in terms of how they serve the market. Um, my guess would be that, that apart from the normal inflation that we're now seeing in Europe, we should not see excessive price increases because competition is still there. And because my, also my guess is that societally this will be deemed unacceptable in, in the European context. Professor, so Marianne David, I think described, um, you know, in, in a very thorough way, um, the, the massive uh, complexities and, and difficulties in this supply chain. 
Um, so my question is, how can researchers incorporate such a massive complexity and still derive insights that are truly valuable and actionable for practitioners? And on the other hand, what can practitioners learn from researchers and what can they do to facilitate this process? Yeah, yeah. I think, that, let's say, if you look at this whole area of uh, humanitarian logistics, both what Maria is doing and what, uh, what my colleagues here in the Zero Hunger Lab at Tilburg uh, are doing, is that there is a tradition of working very closely together uh, with, uh, with NGOs and in uh, applying actually quite advanced analytics uh, there. Um, so, for instance, uh, my, my, my colleagues here at Tilburg, they have been working together with the World Food Programme uh, to optimize the allocation of scarce food in such a way that they optimize at the same time the mix of nutrition. So if you think of various, if you think of beans, rice, etc., in order to have the various nutritional components in a balanced diet, to optimize this as, at the same time as simultaneously with optimizing the logistics and the distribution. Since they will have different requirements in terms of storage, they will originate from different sources, etc. And over the, uh, through that, they've been able uh, to actually uh, feed uh, millions of more people uh, with the same amount of food just by doing that, right? So, so I do think there is advanced analytics techniques, data-driven techniques in combination always in, with closely working with people in the field that really understand on the ground what's going on. I think this is where humanitarian uh, researchers have a very strong tradition and where they have provided uh, lots of uh, value. In a broader sense, I, I think uh, what, 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 what we are doing also in our team is trying to have the same approach, right? So, so what, what we can bring uh, um, from the university is on the one hand, our most advanced techniques uh, that we are using. Typically universities are there ahead because this is where also these techniques are, are developed right here, a few floors down, when I'm on campus now. Um, but at the same time, uh, also closely interacting with uh, key decision makers in the field. And in our case, in our research, it's mostly with companies. Uh, my colleagues in the Zero Hunger Lab mostly work with NGOs. But I, 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 think, I think in that collaboration, by being open, by being appreciative, um, and, and by sharing, I think sharing of, of data, sharing of insights is really crucial. And, and, and with that, we, we can accomplish quite a bit. All right. So I think with that, we're going to wrap up the episode. Thank you very much, Jan. Thanks to Maria and David and Camilo, of course. Have a good one. See you guys. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Tilburg University.